everyone, welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Kenny Pierce. We're going to be talking about theism and idealism. So, Kenny, welcome. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm super pumped for today. So, in case you don't know, Kenny's an expert in early modern philosophy, especially in the work of uh, George Berkeley, who's a famous idealist. So, we're going to talk about theism and idealism and Kenny's views on God and Berkeley's views on God and just all kinds of fun stuff. So, uh, just before we get started, Kenny, is there anything you want to say with regards to like who you are and what you do to get started? Sure. So um, I teach philosophy at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland, um, and I, my kind of connection to Ireland and Trinity College is through George Berkeley, who's the most famous philosophical alum of our university. Um, my kind of two interests, research-wise, are are early modern philosophy, that's seventeenth and eighteenth century, and then philosophy of religion. And in early modern philosophy, Berkeley is kind of my main guy. And, and in philosophy of religion, I'm interested in theistic metaphysics and kind of how do how should people who believe in God think about the basic structure of reality, right? Uh, so today's topic on, on theistic idealism kind of uh, ties those two interests together since Berkeley is a, a famous early idealist and, and theist. Yeah, this is going to be super fun. And we're going to be looking at like Berkeley and his idealism and like you and your view. And is it similar to theistic idealism? So just to start things off, when we're talking about like theistic idealism, Kenny, uh, can you just define like, what does that mean? Sure. So theistic, we just mean including belief in God, right? So it's a, a metaphysical system that, that has God in it. That's all that means. Um, what idealism, what we mean by idealism there's a sort of a very broad sense of idealism that we might define with the slogan, the priority of the mental. So idealism thinks that that minds or mind-like things or mental states somehow come first uh, before the, the physical kind of stuff, whatever that might mean. So that's a really kind of broad, vague slogan, which is what usually happens with isms, right? Mm -hmm. If we want to say something more precise, um, a kind of a metaphysical idealism would say that the the kind of ground floor, fundamental, ultimate level of reality is mind-like. Mm. And so when we think about the existence of, say, a table or even of a human body, and we want to know what it is for that thing to exist, we're going to have to give an explanation that appeals to minds. Yeah, that's super helpful. So when we think about like one of the things that helped me like try to understand idealism is this idea of like, is there like mind independent matter? So like from an idealist perspective, like say like we take out like all the minds that exist, um, there'd be nothing left in that, like an idealist picture of the world. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So on the idealist picture, at least for kind of fundamental metaphysical idealism, mind is the ultimate reality that everything depends on. And so if you take it away, you take everything away. So I'm curious then, because there's like theistic idealism, like the belief in God, um, but there's also like naturalistic idealists. Like I was thinking of like Bernardo Kastrup and I think there's a couple others, but it's not as common. Like what's the difference here? Like thinking about like theistic idealism and like a naturalistic idealism. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's very difficult because you have to think about um, how you're defining God, uh, what it takes to count as a theist. So you might give kind of, you might think that what's known as absolute idealism, a kind of view that was popular in the late 19th and early 20th century, influenced by Hegel, um, usually has kind of the absolute with a capital A 
that is the fundamental ultimate reality is kind of godlike and many absolute idealists like to call it god sometimes mm -hmm. uh, but it's for many of these absolute idealists it wouldn't be something like a very traditional form of god so that might be uh, you might call it pantheistic right pantheistic mm -hmm. idealism or panentheistic idealism depending on how fine you want to make your distinctions um so those would be examples where they're saying there's kind of one ultimate mind that in some sense just is the world right um and and so do you call that theistic or not um could any form of idealism be naturalistic to me that seems unlikely uh, but it depends, again, on, on how you're defining naturalism. So the reason I think it seems unlikely that you could be an idealist and a naturalist is that I tend to think of naturalism as saying that kind of our, our whole metaphysical picture, our whole understanding of the world should be just what's given to us by science. And we shouldn't be going beyond science. And if we look at the picture that's uh, given us by science, um, Psychology is not the fundamental science. It's not the one that's on the, the ground floor, right? It's mm -hmm. kind of a very high level, a special science, as philosophers say, uh, that's dealing with only a tiny part of reality and not the whole of reality. So in terms of, um, in terms of current science, uh, a naturalist is not very likely to be an idealist. An idealist is going to be saying kind of, there's something deeper or more fundamental beyond or behind the science. Hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. So we're going to talk a little bit about like George Berkeley and his idealism. So like, can you talk about like Berkeley's version of idealism? And maybe I'd just be curious, like what kind of got you interested in like Berkeley and his work? And you've obviously sure. written a lot on him. Sure. So here's the, here's the, the kind of starting point. You might remember Descartes and the, the very beginning of Meditations on First Philosophy, which is seen as kind of a founding text for modern philosophy. He starts out at the beginning and he says, look, I believed a lot of false things in the past and I don't want to believe false things anymore. So I'm going to throw out everything that could be false from all my beliefs. And so I don't know, sometimes my senses deceive me. So I don't know whether the chair I'm sitting in exists, right? I could be dreaming or something. And he famously says I could be deceived by a demon uh, you know, who's just causing these perceptions in my mind when there isn't really any chair. And so if you think about, about that as the background, which is kind of the, it's kind of the first thing you read in most introduction to modern philosophy classes, right? Mm. And if you think about Barclay as responding to that, what he's saying is, look, I can see the chair. I can feel it. If I really want to, I can even taste it, Right. Mm. Um, what more do you want? What more would it take for there to be a real chair beyond all of that? And and people are thinking like, well, look, there is there is something more than just my perception, that it's something more to reality than, than just my perception of it. Mm -hmm. But if you read Barclay's book, Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonis, the character Hylas, who's defending matter, he keeps trying to say with here's what it takes, here's what it takes, here's what it takes for the chair to be real above and beyond my perception. This is the additional thing that I need. And every attempt fails, right? He just, so there's this, this feeling that something more than my perception is required to make the chair real. And it just turns out to be really hard 
to spell out what the more is actually supposed to be. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of the that's kind of the starting. I got interested in Barclay my my second year of undergraduate studies is when when I started working on him. So I kind of really early after that introduction to modern philosophy class, coming across this idea, um, it it really uh, that that was the thing that that got me into it. Mm, that's super interesting. So I'm just thinking about like Berkeley then. So if we're thinking about like the table or the chairs we're talking about, so Berkeley is like talking about these like sensations of like you can feel the t- the chair, you can taste the chair. Um, if you ever desire to taste a chair, uh, things like this. Um, and like that's it. That's what we need to describe the chair. Like we don't need to appeal to like this like mind independent thing. Is that kind of what Berkeley's thinking when with his idealism? Yeah, yeah. So when he um, when he wrote the his first book on this topic, the principles of human knowledge. He said, you know, I'm going to argue against the existence of matter um, and the any calls his view immaterialism, right? The denial of matter. And uh, so he's in Dublin and he has this this friend in, in London named Percival who's like going around asking everybody if they read the book over there in London. And, and Percival reports back to him um, well, there was a, a, f- a few people say they've read it. Some people say you, you sound like a guy who loves paradoxes and is just kind of messing with us. Mm-hmm. And this other guy, a physician said, or a, a clergyman said, you must needs be mad and ought to take remedies. Um, and uh, and he, you know, never gets this. People just kind of shrug and um, and blow it off, right? And say, well, this is so crazy. We don't have to take it seriously. And so he writes his second book, Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonis. And in that book, he's really careful to start out at the beginning and say um, that his thesis is that there's no such thing as what philosophers call material substance. Hmm. And then he tries to say the ordinary person who's not a philosopher actually doesn't believe in material substance. They have no such concept this is some kind of technical notion in philosophy and science, and it's a confused one. Hmm. So what is that notion? Well, it turns out there's a billion different versions of it, but but one of the versions he attacks uh, that would be associated, for instance, with John Locke is the notion that if we if we think about the, the chair, there's the color of the chair and the texture of the chair and the shape of the chair and the taste of the chair and so on. And then in addition, there's this other thing, the chair itself that has all of those qualities. Hmm. Right. And, and Barclay is saying, no, 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 you take away the color and the shape and the taste and so on, and you take away the chair. Hmm. Right. If you you just you can't have it without all of those sensory perceptions, those are what what make it. And there's no point in positing this kind of unknowable mind independent material substratum that stands behind all of those qualities. That's not doing anything to explain our experience of the world. It's not doing any work in metaphysics and it's not even coherent. Um, and so he's attacking those kinds of philosophical notions of, of matter and arguing that kind of the ordinary person, well, it's easy for them to get tricked by Descartes or Locke or whoever if they, you know, a little philosophy is a dangerous thing. But mm-hmm. if, you, if you get somebody off the street, they're going to say, um, 
look, when I can perceive the chair, I believe that it exists. And when I, and when I'm like looking around the room, not seeing it, I think there's not a chair there. Right. That's, that's the way this works. And, and so he's saying, yeah, and that's that's all there is. That's the whole story. Right. Mm. It's, it's just the the our perceptions are the whole story of the reality of the chair. Hmm. Hmm. That's so interesting. And I think you've got so I'd love to get into a little bit, Kenny, like your views on God then. So you talk about this idea of like having like a grounding based view of God uh, with regards to like his relationship in the world. And whenever someone says grounding, I always get like really scared because I'm confused of like, what does that even mean? Um, so can you just talk a little bit about like your grounding view based of God and what that means and how it might be different than maybe like Berkeley's idealism? Sure. So if we kind of take a step back in the history, we go earlier than Berkeley. Um, we can see all the way kind of in the in the Middle Ages, particularly in the Islamic tradition, there is kind of a divide between two ways of, of thinking about God. Um, and one way that's um, associated with a, a tradition called the Kalam in Islamic philosophy is uh, thinking of God as, at least in part, as a, uh, a first cause that's kicking things off at the beginning. Now, many of these people also think of God as causing things along the way, but they're thinking of God as a, a cause that is kind of making things happen in, in history. Uh, maybe they, many of, in the Kalam tradition, many think God's the only cause. Okay. Um, but we still get this today with a, a lot of people who kind of think of God, who are like, what caused the Big Bang, right? And they're thinking of God as kind of kicking things off at the beginning or like sticking a finger in there and making the world happen. Mm -hmm. um, there's this alternative approach um, based around the, the argument from contingency for the existence of God that says, we're not, our question is not what caused the big bang. That's not the right question. The right question is look at all of causal reality. The, the kind of totality of the universe. Why is that the way it is and not some other way? Um, and these people are saying, even if there was no beginning, even if it went on forever, there would still be a question about why it goes on forever, the sequence of, of causes, right? Um, and so, and in our universe, we think we started with a big bang. The universe is finite in age. Why is the universe finite in age? Why doesn't it go back forever? Um, which incidentally is something that the kind of laws of relativity, as far as we understand them, allow a, a universe that, that could have existed forever instead of starting with a big bang. Um, so why? Um, and when we ask that question, we're not looking for a cause. We can't be looking for a cause because we're looking for an explanation of the total sequence of causes and effects. And so you can't add another cause to explain it. Now you're going in circles. If it was a cause, it would be one of the things we're trying to explain. So we need some other kind of explanation. And what other kind of explanation is there? Well, a lot of us, uh, a lot of people working in analytic metaphysics today believe in this, this notion of grounding or some version of what's sometimes called interlevel metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And the idea is just that, look, some things are more fundamental than others. 
and the less fundamental things depend on the more fundamental things, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, I use the term grounding really broadly. Some people use it in a more narrow way, but I'm thinking like, if you think about a statue that's made out of clay, this is sometimes called a constitution relation, but I think that constitution is a kind of grounding in my kind of very broad sense. So you might think that the statue just is the clay, but there's a problem with that. The clay existed before the statue did. And if we smash it with a sledgehammer, the statue will no longer exist, but the clay still will. And so they can't actually be the same thing because they don't have all the same properties, all the same features. Um, and so the statue, as philosophers like to say, is nothing over and above the clay. Like if you weigh, you put the statue and the clay on the scale on a scale, right? You're you're only weighing one thing in mm -hmm. some sense, right? There's yeah. only you don't you can't add together the weight of the statue and the weight of the clay. So in some sense, the statue is nothing over and above. But on the other hand, it's not, as philosophers say, numerically identical. There's some kind of distinction to be drawn. Mm. Um, so there's a, a dependency and a nothing over and aboveness, but not identity. And the way I understand the universe's dependence on God is based on that pattern. So I think that uh, God's activity of willing constitutes history that is the total sequence of causes and effects past present and future that is uh history is kind of made out of god's willing or if you like another analogy it's like the way that uh the way that a waltz the existence of a waltz depends on the motions of the dancers and so it's it's god's activity of willing that constitutes the existence of our universe and that our universe depends on in a, a grounding way and not a causal way. Uh, so, so that's the, the view that I defend of the universe's relation to God. Mm. So it's helpful then, like Kenny thinking about your view, like, like, so we're not looking at the picture of necessarily like, um, like God just like creates the universe and kind of steps back and maybe like intervenes um, from time to time. Like maybe that's a more like traditional view of things. But your view is more of like God is like, almost like a transcendent part of the world where he's like, not like necessarily, not like panentheism or pantheism, but more just like, um, he's like more like interconnected with the world than like maybe like some like traditional, like theistic conceptions of God would like think. Well, I'd be, I'd be careful saying traditional um, mm -hmm. because the kind of view I'm describing, I think is very much the sort of thing that you get in Ibn Sina in the Islamic tradition, in Maimonides in the Jewish tradition and in Thomas Aquinas in the Christian tradition. Um, and I think actually that it it is the dominant view in all three traditions in the Middle Ages, I believe. But it does compete with two other views. Um, maybe we'll call them, uh, we might call them deism and occasionalism. The label deism might be a little bit contentious. But think the, yeah, so the deist view would say God kicks things off at the beginning. And then maybe God intervenes, maybe not. But we, but God isn't kind of holding the universe in being or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, the occasionalist view says not only is God the first cause, God's the only cause. So every time I like move my arm, it's God making my arm move. Mm -hmm. And what the what this kind of um, 
I, I would say this classical theistic view um, that I endorse maintains is that there is real causation within the created world. There are real relations of cause and effect. I cause my own arm to move and so on. But that entire system of causes and effects is held in being by God. Hmm. Uh, and that doesn't really involve God being a part of the universe. Um, it does kind of help to explain why people like to talk about God as being both imminent and transcendent, right? Because God is kind of at work in the universe. The whole sequence of causes and effects is held in being by God. But at the same time, God is something that is beyond outside of the universe that exists um, kind of independent of and prior to it. Hmm. So I'd be curious then, Kenny, like looking at like your grounding base view of God, like why do you think it's true? Like why do you think it might have more weight over some of these, like you talked about like deism or like occasionalism? Like, yeah. Yeah. So I think that the... Um, I think a lot depends on what your path into theism is and kind of, I mean, philosophically, right? So there's yeah. kind of in the, uh, you know, I have this recent debate book with Graham Oppie and in the book, I talk about kind of two paths to, uh, to theism, the path through metaphysical reasoning and the path through religious experience and tradition. Um, but on the metaphysical path, you know, if your way in is through the argument from contingency, the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Then I think this is just the conception of God that is needed to do the work that's going on in that argument. This is the the one that that actually succeeds in explaining something that the naturalist can't explain. And you don't need perhaps all the details of the view to be quite the same as mine, but you need a conception of God where uh, God provides a non-causal explanation uh, of the universe in order to do that work. And grounding is kind of, at least in terms of the concepts that are available in recent analytic metaphysics, grounding is the, the concept that fits the bill for what that argument needs. Hmm. That's super helpful. So I'm curious then, Kenny, like, how is your view, like, maybe, like, similar to or different than, like, theistic I idealism? Um, like, does your, like idea allow for like mind independent stuff or like how does that work because when i was when i first like learned about you a little bit more it was when i was talking with like graham Oppie through like email and i was he's talking about like theistic idealism and he put it in like parentheses like people such as you and a couple others i was like oh this kenny pierce guy I should like look him up and um so and then i talked to you and obviously you, you say your view is a little bit different so like how does your view like relate to theistic idealism yeah so so here's the thing so i'm i'm um i'm a theist and i'm kind of sympathetic to idealism i think idealism has a chance to of, of being true i think it should be taken more seriously than most people take it but i don't think that in order to endorse my grounding view uh, about god you have to be an idealist yeah. um but this gets into a tricky issue about the definition of idealism so I said earlier that um, idealism is a view that the kind of fundamental bottom layer of reality is mind-like. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, look, all classical theists think that God is the ultimate fundamental layer of reality, that God is somehow more fundamental or more real than the created world prior to it metaphysically. Uh, and God is mind-like in some sense. Mental yeah. terms are more appropriate to God than physical terms, at least. Um, and so you might think that theism, just by definition, is idealistic. 
that seems to me like a, a kind of just say a bad way of using the terminology. So it's, it's not, there's not anything specific it's getting wrong. It's just not a very useful way of drawing distinctions, I think. Because what we want to do is we want to distinguish theistic idealists like George Barclay, Gottfried Leibniz, Jonathan Edwards, um, and so on. We want to be able to tell them apart from non-idealist theists like maybe Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. But Thomas Aquinas, and I mean, I think that my grounding talk is the right way of translating his view into 21st century lingo. Okay, mm -hmm. that's that's contentious, but but he holds something like this, right? He holds that God is more fundamental, more real, more ultimate than uh, than created things. Mm. So if we're trying to draw that distinction, there are we might say there are at least two kinds of theistic idealism. Mm. One is to say that in the created world, in the, within the created world, um, the minds are prior to the physical things. Mm -hmm. So the, um, and this is the kind of view that um, certainly Barclay and Leibniz would hold, that, that God uh, creates the minds as it were first, or that creating the minds is all God has to do to make the bodies exist. Mm. Um, as long as there are minds, you know, in Barclay's view, God creates the minds and gives them ideas and the bodies exist because the minds have certain ideas. Mm. Um, so the, uh, so that's one kind of theistic idealism. There's this sort of structure of fundamentality within the created world, kind of subsequent to God and the minds might come before the bodies in that world. There's a second kind of theistic idealism that would say that the, uh, the way in which the world depends on God is best described using mental terminology. And here I have in mind, especially the um, present day uh, philosopher Samuel Liebens, who um, says that his view, says that he got this view from um, 17th century Hasidic rabbis, hmm. that okay, this, this he calls it Hasidic idealism. Um, his first paper on this has the fantastic title, God and His Imaginary Friends. So we, of course, are God's imaginary friends. Mm -hmm. And so on, on the Liebens view, Hasidic idealism, the, um, the way God creates the world is something like telling a fictional story or dreaming a dream. And those are the best analogies for us to understand what's going on. And so God is kind of just thinking us up. And mm -hmm. there isn't any kind of additional like willing that's extra to the thinking or or anything like that. It's just the thinking that makes the world exist. Um, and I think Jonathan Edwards, at least on one interpretation, holds a similar view because he says, you know, Barclay says that material that physical objects tables and chairs and cats and things that they're just um they're just ideas and on one interpretation which i don't actually agree with i don't think this is the right way of reading barclay but one way people have read him is as thinking that those objects are ideas in god's mind okay? mm -hmm. 
But there are texts where Jonathan Edwards goes a step farther and says that we also are ideas in God's mind, even human minds, and not just mm. we perceive. And so, um, so that would be similar to the Hasidic idealism that Lieben's defense. So that kind of is a second way of a second kind of theistic idealism that would say something like um, the created world depends on God in a mentally way. Yeah. It's hmm. super interesting, like thinking about like the idea of us just being like part of like God's dream, because it seems like to remove then like all the freedom that at least at least like we think we have. So, well, I think that's I think that's a I think it's not obvious that that's true. Um, mm -hmm. Think about it. Think about it this way. Think about the fictional story analogy. So this is an analogy that a lot of Thomists use as well, even though they're not necessarily endorsing the same kind of idealism as as Liebens. Um Think about a storyteller. So um, Shakespeare did not kill Duncan. As far as we know, he didn't kill anyone. Macbeth mm -hmm. killed Duncan. Um, and Macbeth chose to kill Duncan of his own free will, right? Mm -hmm. And he had reasons for making that choice. Uh, and he could have chosen otherwise. All that's true as long as we're talking inside the story, right? Mm -hmm. We can also say, we can also say, uh, Macbeth killed Duncan because Shakespeare wrote the story that way, right? Mm. Um, that's not a question your English teacher will like very much. Your English teacher wants to know what Macbeth's motives were, what was going on psychologically with him. And that's the same as what happens with any kind of explanation that we might give within the created world. It needs to be an explanation in terms of what uh, in the Thomistic tradition are called secondary causes, right? That is uh, created causes, the causes inside the story and not the first cause, God that stands the primary cause outside the story. That's just not the right kind of explanation um, for our free actions. And so it seems like this kind of multi-level picture might open up at least the possibility for a certain kind of reconciliation of strong divine providence with um, creaturely freedom this is a this is a really um this is a really tricky issue and one that I'm not at all sure about my own position on yeah. but um but this kind of uh broadly Thomistic one is is one that I think has a certain amount of plausibility and attractiveness to it it's super helpful. Thank you. Um, I have one more question, like topic for you to discuss. I want to do a little bit of Q&A at the end, um, if there's any like questions relevant to like what we're talking about. Um, but you obviously like you had this debate book with Graham Oppie that came out. So I'm curious first, like what did you kind of learn through like the process of this debate book? Yeah, so this was this was a really, a really fun and interesting uh, process. One thing that really stands out is that we... Um, I came in at the beginning and I said, we, you know, Graham and I both agree that worldview comparison is the right method for philosophy of religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turns out that we agree way less than I thought about what <laughs> worldview comparison is. <laughs> um, so we, so it, it turns out we weren't really, uh, we weren't really doing quite the same thing mm -hmm. um, to the same extent that we thought. And, and so that really prompted me to think a lot about methodology and the, the details of my methodology and approach to philosophy and how I think about comparing worldviews. Um, and a second thing is that um, I, I very, um, 
I tend to be uncertain about a lot of things. And it's part of Graham's version of worldview comparison that we're supposed to like spell the worldview out in full detail. And it's supposed to be kind of fully committed on every question mm -hmm. uh, in order for us to be comparing them. And so he's always, so he's trying to nail me down on like everything, yeah. uh, right? As we're going through this back and forth, because there's a reply and then a reply to the reply for each of us. And so we're going through this back and forth and he's trying to nail me down on everything. He wants me to take a side. Um, so I, so I really had to think a lot about the foundations of ethics, the foundations of mathematics, um, contrastive explanation, the principle of sufficient reason, and kind of just get all those details spelled out. Um, and I'm still a bit uncertain, but I take a side in the book anyway, on, <laughs> on all these questions yeah. that, um, that turned out to be, to be relevant to our disagreements. Hmm. That's super interesting because it's hard, I feel like, to like have a position on like every controversial issue and like anything, but especially like in philosophy, like all these like big topics really like God and like it'd be hard to like have like an answer to like every single one. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious then just like you talked a lot about like the argument from contingency. So obviously like Dr. Oppie, like he talks a lot about like having like saying like, well, if the theist can say like God is necessary, the naturalist can say that, you know, there's like this necessary, mm -hmm. maybe like initial state of reality. Um, and that's just like, there's our necessary thing. And like naturalism is going to eventually like be the superior view when we look at it, at least from like simplicity. So I'm just curious then, like, how do you like maybe in the book respond to this? Or like, how have you kind of like changed in your thoughts regarding like this idea of Oppies? Yeah. So um, this debate in part started out, um, or at least probably one of the reasons that we were invited to do this book together um, is because I, I previously said in a, a paper in a journal that uh, Graham is right that um, many existing versions of the, uh, of a cosmological argument uh, fall prey to this objection, um, including uh, so he was he was attacking Timothy O'Connor's version, uh, and I think he's right that O'Connor's version has this problem that the naturalist can reproduce the theist explanatory success. Um, at least to a certain extent or within within certain bounds. But what I'm trying to say is that if the naturalist is going to, uh, if the naturalist is going to respect the science, which is the naturalist's whole game, um, then they can't get the kind of entity with current science that is going to do the kind of explanatory work that we need here. And the explanatory work that we need here is uh, we need a non-causal, non-necessitating explanation. So we need a, an explanation that stands outside the sequence of causes and that explains the sequence of causes in a way that still allows that they could be otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and there just isn't anything in current science that fits the bill. And as far as Graham's own position, um, what I'm really pressing him on is that if you look at um, if you look at current science, the suggestion is that the kind of structure of the universe didn't have to be the way it is, that we could have had a, a steady state universe that goes from eternity to eternity without expanding or collapsing if the kind of parameters were just right, um, and and so on. So the and that's and that's not what we see. And so when when he says, well, there's an initial state of the universe that's necessary, um, he needs to explain if if he's going to be consistent 
with kind of how naturalism is supposed to work, he needs to explain how that perspective on necessity is consistent with and preferably even derived from current science. Hmm. And he's not going to be able to do that by taking the things that the physicists say in plain English at face value. Hmm. Okay, now I'm, I mean, I'm hedging a bit here, right? Because there's really mm -hmm. difficult issues about how best to interpret the physical theories. Our current theories are not final theories, right? There's always going to be further progress. There are some known unsolved problems. And also there's this issue about um, how much weight should you put on what the physicists say when they're kind of trying to explain in plain English for popular audiences versus like being deep down in the math, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but the, the thing that, that I think he hasn't done is to explain how his view is coming out of current physics. And I think he needs to do that if he's trying to show that uh, this perspective is one that a naturalist can adopt. Hmm. That's super helpful because like sometimes when I've thought about like Oppie's ideas, I think about it like, well, from the armchair, like maybe he has a point um, and there might be some advantages here. But when you think about like, at least when I think about like Big Bang cosmology and you look at like um, being able to trace the universe back to some sort of singularity to like 10 to the negative 40 or 50th second or something like that. I'm probably getting it wrong because I haven't looked at the science in a while. Um, and it's like it seems super implausible. And they say like, well, maybe there's just, like somehow there's this initial state within this singularity or something like that. It just like I share that intuition of like reflecting on it. Like it seems like not to line up with science, not that it can't, but it's just it just seems unlikely. Yeah, so I mean, so it could be, I mean, certainly there are people who would like people, you know, including scientists, including physicists who would hope that in the future, kind of a completed physical theory would show that there's only one possible initial condition for the universe. Um, that would be really nice. It would get rid of some unexplained brute facts. And so maybe somebody could kind of hope that we're headed there. Mm -hmm. Um but we, we also we have to be we have to be careful as well that um, when we talk about singular singularity, a singularity is not like a physical object or like a moment in time or something. It just means you get that far back and the math breaks down and everything goes crazy and stops making sense. Yeah. So right. So as you get kind of arbitrarily close to the, the zero point, you get a mathematical singularity, which is things going to infinity when they shouldn't in the mm. equations. Um, and so this talk about an initial singularity is kind of a, a loose, it's kind of loose talk. But what we have is, and what Graham says when he's being careful, um, which is most of the time, is, is that we have, um, uh, we have a universe that's finite in age. And so there's kind of some initial segment of the universe that he thinks is necessary. And then you get some like quantum randomness that might make things uh, contingent uh, because there's more than one way those those quantum events can go. But it's that claim of necessity on the initial segment that is something that um, I don't think somebody who's respecting current science should be prepared to make that statement. Yeah. 
That's super helpful. Thank you, um, Kenny. So what we do now, what we'll do now is for about 10 or 15 minutes, do a little bit of like audience Q and A. So if you have questions or super chats, um, we'll go through a little bit of those. Um, so random person here has a question which says, um, what is Dr. Pierce's views on the Thomistic like essence existence unity versus like the Palmite Eastern Orthodox essence energy distinction in God? So heavy stuff, I guess. So yeah. Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, you are so, the Thomas Aquinas expert though, that know, the one man that knows how to interpret Aquinas though. So you got this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not much of an, an Aquinas scholar myself. I'm an early modernist, but um, I, um, so I think, right. So this essence existence view, it's coming out of Ibn Sina or Avicenna as he's known in Latin. Uh, that's what Aquinas calls him. Um, and I think that the, in order to get kind of this maximally satisfying explanatory structure where we kind of get an ultimate explanation with nothing left over. I think we need to um, hold that God's essence includes existence or that existence follows from God's essence or somehow something that God exists essentially. But I agree with Aquinas that we humans can't grasp the essence of God. And so we're not able to do the kind of ontological argument that Anselm wants to do, because that would require grasping God's essence in a way that we can't. Mm. And so, uh, so I'm going to kind of roughly agree with, uh, with that essence, existence, unity, but I'm not sure I'm, I probably don't take on board enough of Aquinas's broader Aristotelian framework for me to mean exactly the same thing as he does by it, but I'm, I'm going to have something like that in my view. Um, as for the essence energy distinction, um, I think there might be something like that in at least the model that I propose. So I say, um, the way I put this in the paper where I first propose it, which is called uh, foundational grounding and the argument from contingency, the way I put it in the paper, I say, I'm going to try to show that this approach is coherent or that it works by developing one possible model of it one possible way it could work without saying that's the only way or the right way. And I think my approach has something kind of similar to the essence energy distinction in Palamas. I know much less about Palamas than about uh, Thomas Aquinas, but I, I have some kind of sense of this a little bit. Mm. My view, I do have um, what I call God's act of willing or God's activity or God's will as something that is kind of distinct from and grounded in God, which is something that uh, Aquinas and Ibn Sina would reject. And I think that the idea that there is that divine activity that is the thing that constitutes the very being of the created world and is in everything throughout the created world and kind of is their, their ultimate basis for their existence. I think that's probably kind of similar to what Palamas means by the divine energies. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm, I'm carefully saying probably kind of similar because I'm not a Palamas expert. <laughs> yeah, well, that's super helpful. Thank you. Um, you talked a little bit about the PSR earlier. Um, so I think Philos asked, like, what version of the PSR do you accept, Kenny? Yeah. So I... Um, the version of the PSR that I accept, and I, I accept it as a conclusion, not a premise. So my starting point is we should prefer views that leave fewer things unexplained. Mm -hmm. 
other things being equal. And then I argue that the classical theist view leaves nothing unexplained. So, um, so that's, so then I get the PSR as a conclusion. Um, and the version that I accept is that everything that stands in need of explanation is fully explained. Um, so I think there are what I, I borrow from Shamik Dasgupta, the, um, the distinction between brute facts and autonomous facts. So a brute fact is something that stands in need of explanation, but doesn't have an explanation. And I reject those. Autonomous facts are facts that don't stand in need of explanation. It's a mistake to ask why. And Dasgupta's examples, which I also think are plausible, of autonomous facts are definitions. Not just definitions of words, but also real definitions, definitions of things. So um, that's a kind of old-fashioned Aristotelian distinction, but it's one I think we very much still need uh, in common sense and in science. For example, uh, physicists know what the word dark matter means, but as of this moment, no one knows what dark matter is. Hmm. And so that question, what dark matter is, is a question about a real definition. Water is H2O or something like that. Water's two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, covalently bonded properly or whatever. That's a real definition as well. And so those facts are autonomous. They don't stand in need of explanation. Um, there's, if I ask, you know, why does this stuff contain hydrogen? Because it's water is one possible way of answering that question. Why does water contain hydrogen is not a good question. That's just what water is. Hmm. So, um, so autonomous facts don't need explanations. Um, and uh, not all explanations are uh, necessitating. That is, you can explain something without it following necessarily from the explanation that the thing has to be true. And um, I don't believe in contrastive facts. So there's no such thing as the fact that uh, I chose to accept rather than decline this podcast invitation. Mm -hmm. um, there's just that I I chose to accept and not decline. And we can explain those things um, in terms of the reasons that I had without necessitating that outcome. Mm -hmm. um, so that's going to be a somewhat weaker version of the PSR then is endorsed by Spinoza and Leibniz. It's going to be pretty darn close to the one that Alexander Proust defends in his book on the principle of sufficient reason. That's super helpful. Thank you, Kenny. So you are a classical theist then, because there's a question about that. Um, so that's like the view you described to? I, I call my view classical. Um, mm -hmm. That term is used a lot of different ways. Yeah. But I would consider my view to be uh, to be kind of within the within the realm of of classical theism. Yes. So affirming thing that things like timelessness, immutability, immutability, impassibility, and simplicity. Um. Yeah. I'm. I'm not sure I can accept as strong a view of simplicity as a lot of the medieval classical theists do. I'm just not sure I can make sense of that view. Mm. I would like to. It's really lovely in a lot of <laughs> ways. It it has it. It's well motivated. It's it's very nice in its in some of its metaphysical consequences. But I'm just as I'd, I'd like to endorse it, but I'm just not sure it makes sense. Mm. Um, so so I might have a somewhat weaker view of simplicity than some other uh, than medieval classical theists do. But I would accept um, timelessness and immutability and things like that.
<laughs> That's awesome. Um, we have one more question for, for you. I think it's a little more like about the history of like philosophy. Um, but it talks about like, was the materialism of the 20th century and like the French deism of the 18th century, like ideologically motivated? So I don't know what they mean by ideologically motivated, but maybe you want to comment on that? Yeah, ideologically motivated is kind of a, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky phrase. Uh, I suppose one thing you might think of it of it as is um, like, is it motivated by some kind of um, political or social aim that is held prior to the philosophy and then we sort of develop a philosophy to rationalize it mm. or something like that? Or is it that people are kind of hostile to the notion that there might be a God and try to develop a philosophy to get away from it? Um, if we're thinking about it that way, um, I think you just got to take each individual person individually mm. because there are there are uh, good arguments that have to be taken seriously and that we have to address. I don't think that we can just kind of dismiss it all as they have this prior commitment to atheism and so they've forced everything to fit that commitment. No doubt there are people like that or a prior kind of opposition to revealed religion in the case of the deists. Um, certainly there are people like that, but um, I kind of think we have to take all the arguments on their merits and consider them carefully and not rush to judgment in any particular case. So I guess I'd just say I wouldn't want to paint all of those thinkers with the same brush. Mm. Yeah, that's probably a great way of thinking about it. So thanks, Kenny. Um, so we're at the end of our questions here in our time. So, so so much fun, Kenny. Do you have anything else you want to say with regards to like stuff we talked about? Um, and then maybe like how people can like follow or connect with you to wrap things up here? Um, sure. So I'm I'm glad there's interest in uh in both idealism and the grounding view of God. These are things I'd I'd love to talk uh more about. Um and uh you can follow up on my my website, kennypierce.net. Uh, or on Twitter and Facebook at Kenneth L. Pierce um, and and find more out more about it there. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kenny. It's been super fun and so much fun to think about like God and idealism and Berkeley and grounding and just all the things we talked about in 50 minutes. So thank you so much for coming on today. It's been awesome. Great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. And thank you everyone who tuned in. We're so grateful for you and your time. So if you enjoyed our channel, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you value your content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash so you can hear apologetics. But yeah, thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope you have a good one and God bless.